0: And then I realized, holy crap, I've still circled like over a million dollars and I've never used my deck. And so I realized as a first-time fund manager, it's just like being a first-time founder, right? A lot of it is you're, you're betting on the jockey, not the horse. <laughs>
1: Welcome to the Vitalize Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Gordon, the Director of Marketing at Vitalize Venture Capital. On today's episode, we have the one and only Matt Conwell, managing partner at Rare Breed Ventures, a pre-seed fund that invests in exceptional founders outside of large tech ecosystems earlier than everyone else. Let's dive in. Matt, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. Sorry it took us so long to make this happen, but hey.
1: (laughs) Hey, you're a busy man. There's a lot going on in life. I understand. And I'm glad we made time for it. I'm going to start in a little bit of a different spot than probably maybe most people. I think from watching from afar and watching interviews, listening to interviews, whatever, seeing you on Twitter, you're a masterful storyteller at heart as well, which I think plays a huge part into obviously raising a fund for whether you're a venture capitalist or a founder. How have you honed that skill set of storytelling? I'd be curious to know more about that.
0: So two things. One... That Probably a lot of that comes from my father, right? Because my father loved the play spades, and he would talk a lot of mess, <laughs> and he would tell a lot of stories. The other thing is, you know, some I've had, I met people who say, you know, I'm not a good storyteller. I don't tell good stories. And I always tell them like, I always ask this question. I'm like, have you ever been on a terrible date? And you say, yeah, I've been on a terrible date. And I'm like, so what do you do after that date? You usually call one of your best friends, right? I'm like, yeah. And then you usually, like, tell a story, like, how terrible the date was. Yeah. Well, then you're a good storyteller. And I know you're a good storyteller because we've all had that experience, right? So it's just really honing in like the, the kind of creativity and all the expressions and all the emotions we have from telling stories with our friends about like the things that happen in our day-to-day life. You just put that to like what you're working on, right? Or put that to yourself. Like, instead of telling a story about somebody else or an event, you tell a story about yourself and every like most people all of us have that right it's just this is really tapping into it uh the other thing is i was probably born for the stage like so (laughs) how this works
1: i love it i love it i want to go back to the beginning the storytelling of this fund obviously we've heard it on different podcasts people don't know the absolute hustle for a number of months and obviously continues to actually close it in the point of raising your fund, starting to talk to people. You mentioned early on that you know, talked to Elizabeth Yin as one of the early people who you mentioned, oh yeah, it's 10K minimum in the fund. Like, oh yeah, I'm interested. That could be an interesting fit for me. Take me through the evolution of those meetings from the first few meetings to the thousandth meeting. Like how did you evolve that story? How did you evolve based on that feedback? I'm curious.
0: It was interesting in that I started off having meetings. Just trying to meet as many people as I could, because I like I was trying to learn. I'm, I'm learning from other GPS. I'm learning how to raise a fund, and so like I didn't go into those meetings thinking about or talking about money. I was just talking about myself and what I was and what I was aspiring to do, and I was learning about them. And those meetings would turn into, you know, sometimes people would be like, "Oh, that's interesting. I I, I could see myself doing that." Like I had with Elizabeth. And so then that just became the strategy. And then I realized, holy crap, I've self-circled like over a million dollars and I've never used my deck. And so I realized as a first-time fund manager, it's just like being a first-time founder, right? A lot of it is you're, you're betting on the jockey, not the horse, right? So I recognized very early on, like, yeah, I have a bit of a track record and does it matter? A bit. But what more what matters more is like their belief in me and my ability to source deals, pick the right ones and make money. And if I can get somebody comfortable that I'm going to at a minimum work my butt off day in and day out to do that, well, they might back me. And so I was able to hone that story about myself and what I was doing. And then the story of my just my personal journey and story literally became my pitch.
1: For people who haven't heard that, why did you get into venture capital in the first place? This is obviously not not your first rodeo in terms of venture capital, but why did you get into VC in the first place?
0: Well, I got into VC in the first place, one, because like I was an entrepreneur, right? And every entrepreneur who's ever tried to raise money at some point in the process feels like they could do this. <laughs> like I have yeah. friends, I know how to pick companies, like how hard could this be? It's probably a little bit harder than that, but like that's how like most entrepreneurs probably <laughs> feel about it, right? So I always had that thought in the back of my head. Like, I could do this. But um, I didn't have a pathway, right? So for for for, for, ta- for context, I'm a software engineer by trade. I, I happen to be the CEO of two startups, um, even though I had an engineering background. But that's because in my first company, the entire team was all engineers. So somebody had to do it, right? So that became me. Um, but then like after, so my first company was a mild success. My second company fails, and then I get a job at a marketing firm. Because after you have a company fails, that just sucks. like life really sucks after you have a company fails. like we all talk about this fail fast to go start like no, you fail when you have a company fail, like it does not feel good, And so I just got a job at a marketing firm, and so, um, I'm working at this firm, just trying to get a paycheck, do some cool work. That firm ends up getting a client that I don't agree with ethically, so I just quit on principle. Um, which is like a big thing in the own, right? Because I was talking to people and telling my friends like, yeah, I think if we get this client, I'm going to quit. And everybody thought I was joking. Or everybody was like, you should not quit, but like wait till you got another job secure, right? Like, you know, like security. And I was like, no, if they do this, I'm out. I actually thought I was half joking. I thought there was no way that they were ever going to win this client. Like I didn't think we could be to it. And then they won the client. And so I had to quit. <laughs> and I was like, all right. That happened on a Friday. And the very next Monday, I got an email that was like a community-wide open email saying that the investment arm for the state of Maryland was hiring a new fund manager. And whether it was arrogance or naivete or foolishness, I was just like, okay, I could do that. And so one of my earliest mentors actually worked at that firm at the time. So I called him. And so like, I, this is like my last week on the job, right? I gave my two-week notice or whatever, but I'm leaving after a week. So I called him and I'm like, you think I, you know, what do you think? You think I could do this VC thing? You think I could give a shot? He's like, well, you know, we're trying to do some things different. You are trying to, you know, change it up here. You know, cold words for we're trying to diversify. We don't have any black people here. So, you know, give it a shot. And so I did. And four and a half months later, they hired me. And so, like, I literally broke an venture by sending my resume and writing a cover letter for the first time in response to an email. So, yes.
1: <laughs> That's amazing. With that too, so that was how you kind of first got into venture, obviously raising this fund, you decide to do that. One of the things that stood out to me was when someone really took a bet on you, they said, hey, I'd, I'd give you 250000 to to start going after this, that, that side of things. What is it about you then betting on yourself? Like, How did you get to that point? Have you always had that self-confidence to do that? I'm curious because there's a lot of other founders out there, people who are considering you know, starting venture firms, whatever it may be, who are maybe hesitant. I'm curious for you, what is it about betting yourself that
0: you'd be able to do repeatedly? I just have really high risk tolerance. Like coming up from like growing up in Baltimore is in, in like the greatest environment, right? I had great parents. But like I've gone through periods in my life where I've been homeless. There was a period of time in high in college, I lived in a truck. I lived in one of my dad's best friends trucks. Like his one of his best friends was on vacation. I knew this. And um I went to his house. And I knew where all the keys were in the house. And I just took one of his trucks because he had a bunch of extra trucks. And uh, I lived in that truck for several months. Right? Like, I know what it's like to be at rock bottom. I will never be that again in life. Like, no matter how much risk I take. (laughs) Yeah. Like, I know how to make money. Right? Like, I know how to get jobs. So, like, even if I go out and blow everything I have today, like, I I could get a six-figure job again, right? Like, I, But, like, you also got to remember, I dropped out of school my junior year. I'll never forget. It. My junior year is, like, the the, the, the first semester of junior year, and me and a bunch of my homeboys were hanging out, and I was just looking around I'm like, yeah, I don't think I'm coming back to school. I think I'm going to get a job. I'll never forget, like, the looks on their faces, and they're like, yo, what are you thinking about when you're talking? Like, you're wowing. And so then I quit school. And then I get a job at Northrop Grumman, making more money than I thought was possible. And a year and a half after that, I got a six-figure job, a four-story townhome and three cars, you know? Having all that at the age of 21, man. i like, all right. <laughs> now, granted, when I started my first company, I lost all of that, but that's another story, right? But like, for me, my risk tolerance is just so high because like, I know what it feels like to lose, and it's not the end of the world right it sucks but you can build your way back like like dave chappelle talks about going on the apollo and you know he was a young comedian but he started doing comedy professionally at a really young age he was like in high school and so he talked about going to the apollo and getting booed and bombing but he had never bombed before and he said he was sitting there he's like i'm getting booed this doesn't feel good my family's here it's not the end of the world. Like, if this is the worst that can happen to me, I think I'm okay. And so like, it's just that kind of mindset.
1: Yeah, with that, I always think about that too, because I honestly, a while back reading like the four-hour work with Tim Ferriss type stuff, mentioned like, you know, what's the worst case scenario, those types of ideas and thinking. And like, to your point, like I was making 30 something thousand out of a personal trainer out of college and I was perfectly happy, but like, Going from that to this world of tech and venture is insane money, crazy, whatever. It's like the risk tolerance is definitely there from that. Like I can go back to zero and I'm okay. I'll, I'll figure it out. I'm, that, it's like the that, that confidence that you have that you can you can figure it out. You can find a way to make it work that allows you then to, to take those bets. And I always think of like talking to Charles Hudson at Precursor and they've done hundreds of investments at the pre-seed. They're, they're taking lots of bets, but I think Charles is going to be a billionaire, like it's like no, no question in my mind because all the bets they are taking at precursor earlier than anyone. Like it's like, you you believe in that so strong because you see that. And I think for others out there trying to take risk, it's like when you do bet yourself and you have that confidence that you can go to zero or go back down to a lower level and be okay, then you take those, those swings. You have some chances, which you know, I think about that, it vitalized too with us and what we're doing, trying to do different things, like trying to do an angel community with non-accredited investors is like, how, like what, like, what are you doing? It's like, we're taking that risk because we want to open up access to the asset class. So it's like, you're trying to do those things because you believe so strongly in it. One of the things I'm curious about with you and your journey with obviously now you've, you've raised the fund, you've deployed around half of it so far. It shifts though from the early days when you're raising that fund, having those meetings, you mentioned in an interview doing, you know, 25 or 28 meetings a day doing like five or 10 on the weekends. It's insane numbers, but the focus is very clear. It's just, you're raising the fund at this point though. You also have founders in the portfolio. You're looking for new founders, and I imagine you're going to be raising another fund. So how is your time split up and prioritized at this point, Mac?
0: Uh, I wake up in the morning, I check my calendar, and then I go put on my fire suit, get everything set up, and just wait for the fire alarm to sound and go like, okay, which fire do I got to put out in between meetings? Right? Yeah. (laughs) it's a day of meetings and a day of putting out fires and whatever's left at the end of the day is what's left. Right. So prioritizing like is difficult just because I am like, so I have a team, but I'm the only full-time person. Right. So yeah, that, that, that just, that just leaves a lot. And, um, it's almost impossible for me to do everything I'd have to get done in a day. Right. Cause you still got personal life. You still got family, you still got home life. You, you need to go to the bathroom at some point, right? <laughs> well, I guess you can still answer emails while you're in the bathroom. So, like, maybe not. Um, Twitter Spaces in the bathroom, yeah. Whatever. Like, like <laughs> all that. So, really, the priority is, you know, there's certain key things I got to get done. There's certain key things I got to do for my LPs and founders I need to check up on and like documents I need to take care of and like that's got to get done. And that's like just the operational side of managing fun. Then there's the the, the the entrepreneurs I'm going to meet. Like, how many am I going to meet a day? You know, how many of these meetings are, like, for investment opportunities or just, like, coaching opportunities? And and then, you know, there's the answering emails, the doing Twitter. Uh, you know, I don't – people think I spend a lot of time on Twitter. I don't actually, right? Like, m- one of my big secrets to Twitter is I don't look at my timeline. So, like, anybody out there who tweets and you're mad that I didn't, like, like your tweet or I didn't respond to it, like, if you haven't tagged me in it, I don't see it. I only interact with my notifications. So I only interact with my own tweets or people who are tweeted at me because that's how I keep myself from spending too much time on it. Right. Yeah. Um, So those are like the three general buckets of the day. And then it's just like whatever fire pops up in between, like inevitably, like in during a week, I'm gonna have a founder call me or text me and want to talk through the next round or they need some help with something or they need an introduction. And like, how do you,
1: with, with that, and obviously the family time you mentioned as well, does that come, I'm just curious in the dynamic how that works. Is it like you have a set time with them that you're trying to hang out? Is it uh weekends you set set time aside? I'm curious on logistics on that. Cause like everyone has a different, everyone has a different schedule. Uh, I just find it fascinating to hear how people, especially, let's just say super high performers who seem to be super busy, how they actually handle that with family and everything else outside of work. Uh, how do you handle outside of work stuff?
0: When you figure it out, please let me know. <laughs> like if I can be honest about it, like, I, I don't know, like, like people talk about, you know, time management. And it's like literally, it's, there's 24 hours in a day, and I got 40 hours worth of work every day. Like the math doesn't add up, yeah. right? Yep. So you just make it work the best you can, right? Like you 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 notice sometimes, like, okay, I've been working too much. Let me let me let me shut down at 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock a day, and we'll spend some time, you know. Um, this Saturday, having no meetings, clearing my schedule, whatever. Like if I can figure out how to not have anything to do every Sunday during the Ravens game, I can figure out how to find like a three or four hour block on a weekend to spend some time with family. And so, you know, that's, that's the way I think about it. You just kind of make it work. Yeah. And you always have to be thoughtful and cognitive of how much time you're not spending with friends and family. Right? Like every and then, and then like, you know, one of the big things that helped me when I was an entrepreneur was I would put slots on my calendar. Cause like even today, like I if it's not on my calendar, it doesn't exist. No matter what it is, right? Like like if me and you have an email, we say we're gonna meet, but there was never a calendar invite, that meeting does not exist. Right? <laughs> There's gonna be time for the meeting and you're gonna send me an email, like, yo, Mac, are we still talking we're like oh I got I got another meeting here on my calendar. It's not you, so we do yeah. have to reschedule, right? <laughs> um and so, like, I will block time on my calendar to do stuff like go have drinks with friends, call a friend, <laughs> like don't work, you know, like all the things like if it's like I, I sometimes have to put like life things on my calendar. Just to give myself breath and space in a way that is recognizable to me. Like me just like, yo, know, I'm not doing any more emails right now. I'm walking away from my computer. That didn't feel like that doesn't feel the same. But when I'm doing emails and I get the notification in ten minutes, you're gonna go call a friend. It's like, oh, in ten minutes I'm gonna go find a friend to call. Yep. Right? I love that. So you know, those are kind of like mental hacks just to try like get over it.
1: No, I appreciate I appreciate you sharing those. I wanna go now to lifeblood of what makes obviously rare bead work is the founders. What are you looking for in the founders you're investing in, Matt?
0: Every founder's different, right? What I'm looking for is Unique perspectives on industries, unique perspectives on customer acquisition, unique perspectives on just product innovation, right? And so for some companies, it's going to be they got amazing traction. They figured out how to get customers. They know where they're going. And I love what they're about. I'm all in it. Others, it's like, yo, this founder's got so much hustle and grit. Like, if I don't back them, I'm going to hate myself. I'll do that. And then, like, everything in between. Right. And so every deal is its own individual thing, its own individual scenario. I'm just looking for amazing people. Right. And Amazing people come in all shapes, sizes, colors, what have you. And amazing is different for every person. Right. Like the woman I tell the story of who became a surrogate mother that raised money to start building her prototype. Like you show me somebody else who's got more grit than that. Like, yeah, sure. Like, I don't know how that, I don't know where that exists. Right. And at the same time, you go, you got like a founder like Doug over at Main Street, you know, he's a two-time exited founder coming out of Google with a couple of his, you know, you know, co-workers to build this like crazy fast growing company in Main Street. But when you talk to Doug, he has true clarity of like where he's trying to go and what he wants to do. And he legitimately cares about people. Like he truly cares and you see it in the ethos of what he does and how he handles the company, and how he handles the company culture, like having a fast growing, fast paced startup that still cares about people, right? It's really hard to do. Um, and he's managing that really well. And like, these are two very different individuals. One's a black woman from Baltimore. The other one's a successful founder who has, doesn't really need my money whatsoever, but yep. they're both legitimately amazing individuals.
1: One of the things you mentioned before, and I, I wanted to bring it up is you mentioned that thing of product versus kind of a customer acquisition and how you know essentially product is table stakes at this point in terms of having good product, solid product interface, all that stuff. But acquisitions, especially what you you care about in that, so people will know about. it. For you investing in the pre-seed out of Rare Breed Ventures, what are you looking for in terms of customer acquisition? how people think about it, et cetera, from these early stage founders who might just have a product or maybe pre-product or just just launched a product. I'm curious on the customer acquisition,
0: like how are you evaluating that or what are you looking for on that side of things? I'm looking for one of two things, right? I'm looking at your ability to just execute and like gain customers, right? And then, or I'm looking for your ability to be creative about it. The amount of decks that I see that give the exact same cookie cutter strategy to getting customers, like it's just, it's mind boggling to me, right? Yeah. Because a lot of these founders are raising capital because they, they, they want more capital so they can grow faster or like because they want to get more customers. I'm like, well, be creative about how you go about getting your customers, right? Um, you know, the big thing for me was like when I was an entrepreneur, I was the same way. Me and my team built all this amazing tech, had a really dope product we thought, and then we didn't have any customers. So we just figured if we had money, we could use that money for marketing. And what I realized is if you get the money, like a lot of entrepreneurs are trying to raise money or trying to get money to solve problems they don't know how to solve. And so the first time we got money, we blew it trying to figure this issue out. And we just wasted a bunch of money. And, you know, one of my advisors here in Baltimore one day was like, yeah, you know, I got my first like 500 customers just cold, eat cold tweeting people. Let me show you how you Google, how you look up people, search on Twitter, and like find people to, to tweet at. And so I started doing that. And that's like how we started getting customers. Right? For my second company, I used Instagram. I used Instagram as a way to attract sellers by just reposting their products. Like I was I literally there's there's an Instagram page out there called Shop Redberry. Shop Redberry. Which is gonna be awkward because like you know what I look like, but when you go look at like all the stuff there, it's like <laughs> a bunch of stuff for young women, right? And it's like, <laughs> I needed to find shops because we were building a, a mobile platform for e-commerce. And so I was just trying to find shops that I like. And so what I would do is I would go on Instagram and I would find shops that I thought was interesting and I would just repost their products and give them a shout out. And so I literally created an Instagram page dedicated to shouting out shops that I thought were cool. And every time I did that, that shop would always like or reply or comment on the post, right, and thirty percent of all the other likes and comments came from other shops or bloggers, and so I just used that to create myself a spreadsheet of like thousands of shops and bloggers, <laughs> and then used that to create an email uh, a cold email campaign, but it wasn't really cold because they had a touch point with their Instagram, right? I had, I think, at the height of it, like an eighty-two percent open rate and like a sixty-nine percent response rate.
1: Yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs>
0: Right. And like none of that costs money. It costs me a lot of time. Right. I knew way too much about young women's fashion than I needed to be at the time. But like I had to figure it out because nobody was going to give me money to figure it out. Right. And so when I see founders coming and like those kind of ways are some of the best ways to grow a community and grow a product. And so when I see founders thinking, exclusive, like crazy, like, like, like the founder, Femi, a path. Uh, formerly known as ScholarMe. He used Venmo. He found people who were of of like high school student age and sent them a penny with a message that said, here's money for college. If you want more, check out ScholarMe. <laughs> because he recognized that Venmo was a social media app. So then their friends are like screenshotting it and tweeting about it. And like he got, got 25,000 users in his first three months. Sending pennies. To high school students on Venmo. Like, fast bonkers. <laughs> and so, like, I'm always looking for, like, but if you come to me like, yo, Mac, we spend X amount of dollars on ads. We get X amount of customers. Every time we increase it, it keeps going. Like, hey, I'm with that, too, right? If you can show me your ability to execute to getting, to getting customers, that's what I want to see. So those are the two things. Your ability to execute or how creative
1: Okay. Those are some good examples. I want just one more. One more from your portfolio. Another one that just you thought was unique in terms of acquisition strategy. I love these ones you said so far. I'm just, I want more.
0: <laughs> so this isn't really an acquisition strategy, but this is hustle, right? So there's a company in our portfolio called Wove. Wove Made. It's a jewelry company. So what they do is uh, they, they 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 make engagement rings and, and, and wedding bands and such. But what they do is they tab you, send them pictures, of rings that you like, typically from Instagram or Pinterest or somewhere, and then they take it, and within a week or two, they send you a box of three replicas. They basically 3D print replicas for you to try on and see, and then they do an online consultation with you to create whatever it is your dream ring, right? Uh, two It's a veteran-owned company, too. It's two former Army Rangers. Amazing founder story, right? Well, the thing about them is when I met them, they said they wanted to be the Warby Parker George. Okay, everybody wants to be the Warby Parker of something, right? Yeah. And then they tell me they're working with this company called Bullish. Bullish happens to be an investment firm that also does marketing. That is also the firm that helped launch Warby Parker. Okay, I'm all ears now. How do you two amazing entrepreneurs get a group like Bullish to pay attention to you they were like well you know we figured out um one of the addresses to one of the partners there and we just shipped them our box with the replica rings in it just on a whim that led them to getting a meeting and that led them to working with bullish. the amount of like hustle and ingenuity and just like Yo, I don't know what's going to happen, but I'm just going to put this out there and see what what comes, right? Like, that's the equivalent of our – that's the equivalent of, like, a founder DMing me, right? And be like, hey, Mac, try our products. Okay. If I see it, I'll probably try it, right? Yeah. Like, those kind of things, that type of hustle matters. And so, like, for them, they're going to go through a traditional marketing route, but they're going to be working with one of the best marketing firms they could possibly ever (laughs) work with. I mean, bullish has worked with like Warby Parker, Sundays, Harry's, like amazing D C brands, right? <laughs> but like, but like also like the gumption to be like, oh yeah, we're just going to do this and we'll see what happens. Like that takes like guts. So that's a little bit of a different angle to it. But like, you no, know, yeah. I love those dudes over at Wolf. I
1: love that. No, I think to that point as well. It's like those types of things that are very limited downside but unlimited upside. Take as many bats, or, you know, swings of that as you can, because that is the ultimate. Like there what's the downside of them sending a box to them. Nothing. Like, the money that costs like whatever to ship it and have the box. That's it. What's the upside? There you go. They have them as a partner. Like, I think I see those things all the time when talking to founders who have found those. And then you have this potential. And I just talked to Jordy Hayes at Party Round and they had just raised $7 million from Andreessen and a bunch of other people. And they're doing drops as a strategy to gain you know, attention and the downside with them, like they pay maybe a developer to build a, a page out and some time to figure out the idea. But the upside, those have gone viral repeatedly. I think they have five drops already, gone viral every single time, and that's a huge buzz for their company. And then obviously it helped them raise money from that too. It's like founders trying to find those, like that's totally worth it uh, if you can find those types of things. And I, I know we're we're almost out of time here. I'm just curious as we as you wrap up here, like what what's next on the horizon for Rare Breed and what you're doing with them.
0: Up next is the next fund. Going bigger, going doing more companies, growing the next, you know, big name firm. You know, the next NEA, the next Sequoia, the next Andreessen, the next first round. We're going to be in that, that echelon, right? But, you know, we're with the next group coming up. So, you know, we're probably going to be like the group that's going to replace those folks are going to be the precursors, the hustle mm. funds, the vitalized, the rare breeze, like we are part of the next wave. So that's what's next. Building that while also growing with my peers and the folks that I respect.
1: I know you mentioned that you're the single kind of full-time person on board. Are you, are you hiring anytime soon? Do you need anyone? I want to give you a shout out if you have it for any position you're looking for. If you have it, uh, feel free.
0: So shout out to my team. First and foremost, shout out to my partner, Jonathan Kroll. Yeah. Jonathan, I love you. Be my, he's going to be my co-GP for fun too. Love shout it. out to Margaret and Tomby. She is a fellow at Rare Breed who is kicking butt. Shout out to Rapaloo. Shout out to Janine, our other two fellows. Shout out to Amani, Amani Phippis, who works at Main Street, but is a venture partner. They are my team. They are my core. Um, As we look to like raise a bigger fund and be able to hire folks, we will most likely hire from within. But if we ever do have a job opening, I will put it out publicly and I will be taking on all comers. Perfect. One day. (laughs) One day. Very soon, I'm sure. What's the best way people to
1: reach out to you or founders to pitch you, Mac?
0: Find me on Twitter. At Matt Conwell, M-A-C-C-O-N-W-E-L-L or search for Mac the VC. Twitter's the best way to get me. And um, yeah.
1: Mac, thanks so much for
0: the time today. I really appreciate it. Absolutely, man. It was great to talk to you. Hey, thanks for listening.
1: If you want to learn more about us, head on over to Vitalize.vc. You can also follow us on Twitter at VitalizeVC. Or you can follow me on Twitter at Gordon 212 Have a great day, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.